heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Um, I am, well, Andy got a, a better good morning, but I guess you guys are falling asleep now that I'm up here. That's okay. Um, I am so excited to open God's word with you all. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I am one of the pastoral assistants here. Um, I get to uh, be on staff and work regularly with the middle school and the young adults and in any other way that they uh, see fit to use me. So uh, in this case, it is preaching. So I'm really excited to open God's word with you. But before we open up to James 5, I want to tell you guys a personal story from my childhood um, because today's passage is about patience. And what better than to start off with a personal story about impatience, right? So there was one time when I was a kid, uh, I would have been probably about 10 or 11 years old, where uh, my mom had told me to do the laundry, all right? She said, I'm going out for 30 minutes. Now, just, just to be clear, I come from a big family. I had older siblings around. She wasn't about to leave us home. But she said, I'm going out for 30 minutes. Start the laundry. Complete it. Do, do it on your own, you know get it done, have it done when I come back, blah, 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 right? And so I'm sitting here thinking, it's the middle of summer. I would rather be doing anything else besides the laundry, okay? Uh, I would rather be outside playing with my friends and doing all these different things. And in this case, my friend came over. I had a neighbor friend who had a pool. And he said, hey, come over to my house. Let's go swimming, and me being the 10-year-old, thinking that I was a good middle manager, you know, someone who was able to delegate, went to my little brother who was, would have been six at the time and said, all right, Benny, Ben, that's his name, you are going to do the laundry. Mom gave this task to me and now I'm giving this task to you, right? So I showed him how it works. You know, I said, you know, you put in this much soap, put it in the machine, start it. When it's done, you move it over to the dryer. Easy peasy, right? Uh, so easy, even a baby could do it. Or in this case, a six-year-old could do it. But as uh, time went on, you know, I'm over at my friend's house, swimming, having fun, doing the, the normal things that a 10-year-old does. I see my mom walking over and she walks up to the pool and she says, Jeremy James, that's not a good sign anytime, all right? I go by JJ, my mom calls me JJ. She says the first and the middle name, that's not good. Jeremy James, get out of the pool and come home right now. What, what went wrong? Did I leave my room messy? Surely it has nothing to do with the laundry because Benny's got that. Well, I walk into the kitchen and uh, just to the right of our kitchen is where our uh, wash machine and our dryer is. And there is water all over the floor, suds overflowing the wash machine, and dryers open with sopping wet clothes in the dryer. Turns out that my little brother also wanted to go swimming at our friend's house. And he thought it was a wise decision to push as many buttons as he could to get it to work faster. And in doing so, he overwhelmed the machine or whatever, caused it to overflow, and then in a panic, threw his wet clothes, in, threw all of our wet clothes into the dryer and actually broke our dryer. 
We had to, my mom had to call her a pear man. For whatever reason, my mom thought this was my fault. Now, <laughs> moms in here, maybe you, you would like to agree with her and you'd be 100% right. It was my fault, right? I was too impatient to stay at home to do what I was told to do because I wanted to go out and do something else, right? And maybe you guys can think of a time that you've been impatient in your life. You know, maybe you can think of um, a time when you were uh, waiting on your kids to get ready on a Sunday morning to make it to church. Maybe that was this very morning, right? Maybe you can remember a time where one of the pastors was preaching a sermon that just went a little too long. I'm not going to name any names, but we've, we've all got that person in our head, right? But we've all experienced this idea of impatience, but this passage is talking about um, this idea of uh, patience, but deeper, right? It's not just, I'm impatient to go to my friend's house. I'm impatient to make it to the church. I need to be more patient to do this thing or do that, right? It's actually uh, addressed to Christians who are suffering, they're in deep pain. The reason why we read verses one through six is because that sets up the context for what we're going to be looking at for the Christians. It's that the rich were oppressing the believers. The, the poor were being oppressed. They were suffering. They were in pain. This command of patience that we heard read and that we're going to read again is not given to people who are living their best life. It's not given to people who have the privilege of sneaking off to their neighbor's pool. It's people who are in serious, serious pain. And patience is, is so much more difficult to practice when you're in pain. Patience is so much more difficult when you have a family member who's sick. When, you're, uh, when you have coworkers who treat you harshly because of your willingness and your desire to follow Jesus. Patience is so much harder to practice when that family, family member does something that brings you pain. <clears throat> We've all experienced suffering of some sort. And today we're going to be reading about uh, or, and learning about what God's command for us to do in that suffering and how we can be patiently waiting on the Lord. So why don't we open our Bibles to James 5. James 5. And we're going to read verses just, just verses 7 through 12. And then I'll pray and we'll jump in. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that as we look to you this morning, as we look to uh, what your word has for us on, on this uh, practicing of patience through suffering, I pray that you 
would be evident, um, that your hope and your grace and your love would be evident through the words that I speak and that it would be evident in the, on the hearts of those who are hearing. I pray that your spirit would work because there's nothing that I can say that will magically um, enlighten them, Lord, but it, it has to be you who shows them the truth. I pray that you would work in this congregation, work in my own heart as we talk through this. I pray this in your name, amen. So as I stated a few moments ago, we are called to be patient, right? But what are we to be patient for? How can someone be patient, right? Why are we being patient? And James addresses it right away. He jumps right into it in verse seven. He says, be patient for the day of the Lord. But what is this idea of patience, right? We, we know what, the, what patience means. It's the idea of waiting, Right? You have to, if you're going to be a patient person, you, it, it is automatic, like part of patience is the idea of waiting. Okay, so we have to wait for the day of the Lord. All right? That means it isn't instantaneous. It's not this idea that, all right, Lord, I'm waiting on you. And then, you know, you kind of, you got your eyes closed and you open them and you're peeking around. It's like, is it here? Right? That, that's not patience. Right? Patience is this idea that you have to sit with it. You have to wait till the Lord is ready to move. It means a believer who is being patient is expected to be in that situation for a time. That it is a process. That it isn't, again, that it isn't just this instantaneous fixing of any problem that you have. This idea of patience, of waiting, is that there is going to be a time period in your life where you have to deal with with the suffering that you are in. And James gives us a really uh, cool picture of what that looks like, right? And he points down to the farmer. He says, the farmer doesn't put the seed in the ground. And then, you know, or he says the farmer has to wait for the, for the crop, right? So the, the farmer doesn't put the seed in the ground and then the next day wake up and he's got a field full of crops, right? He doesn't suddenly have all the fruits he, he planted yesterday. He's got to wait for months and months for those crops to grow. It takes time and patience for the, for the land to yield its fruit. And I'm sure if you've ever had a garden, you can imagine what that's like, right? My mom used to grow tomato plants. My mom didn't put the seed for the tomato plant in the ground and then the next day walk out and be like, why are there no tomatoes? She knew that there was going to be a time, right? If you have a yard, right? If, and if you're planting grass, you know that it takes time for that grass to uh, take root and to grow well, Right? The only thing that seems to pop up faster than the grass are the weeds that you try to pull and you, you kill, and, and those seem to pop up very quickly. But when the things that you want to grow seem to grow slowly. So this wait for the crop is long. And the good fruit that you're meant to wait for is, is this idea that you have to wait for the fullness of the crop, right? Because again, as soon, when the plants come out of the ground, you can't just, the second you see the, the corn or the apple or, or the tomato or whatever you're seeing, if you pull it off the, the, the branch right when you see it, it's not going to be ripe. It's not going to taste very good. It's going to taste bad. And I think in, in our culture, this idea of patience, of waiting, is a really, really difficult thing. Because everything around us is like this instant, like we can pretty much solve any problem instantly, 
right? If you are hungry and you don't want to cook a, a meal that takes you an hour, you can run down the street and get McDonald's or whatever you might want. For me, that's McDonald's, right? If you need to find out this obscure piece of information about African penguins, I don't know, whatever your, your interest is, right? You don't have to open this book and, and read chapter after chapter after chapter to find out everything. You can pull out your phone, you can press a couple buttons, and you've got the world's knowledge on the African penguin in your hand. You, this idea of waiting is difficult for us because everything in our life, or so much of the things in our life, are fixed instantly, and don't get me wrong, this is not like a sermon that I'm not preaching that you can't use those things, okay? I love that I'm able to pull out my phone and have a GPS, okay? I would get lost pretty much everywhere I went if I didn't have the GPS. I went to Iceland this summer, and I don't, in case you guys may have guessed, I don't speak Icelandic or read it, so I would have had no idea where I was going without a GPS, okay? So I'm not saying that these are inherently wrong things. What I am saying is that in almost every area of our life, or when almost every area of our life is able, you're able to fix problem after problem after problem instantly or almost instantly, when you're faced with a problem that is painful, that is hard, and you're told to be patient and wait, that's not an easy thing. That is not something that is easy for us. But, but James doesn't just leave us with this idea of wait. He's not just saying, all right, well, you're in pain. Hold on, right? He's pointing to something. And he, he says it right here in the verse. It's, we're waiting for the day of the Lord. We're waiting for Christ's return. The ultimate fruit of our, of our faith, of our patience, is the second coming of Jesus. This idea is predicated on the Lord coming in his timing and us being the ones who are patient. It's, giving, it's us giving up our own timetable and waiting for the Lord to, to come when he is ready. James is saying that we need to be prepared to go through the suffering, but James is also saying that uh, in these verses that the day of the, it says uh, in a couple of verses down, it says the judge is standing at the door. It makes us think that it's soon, right? That it's, it's gonna be the next week. It's not actually saying that. It's saying that it's imminent. It could be any time. He's, but the idea in this passage isn't actually, uh, the, the thrust of this isn't the idea that of the timing of God's return, but actually it is the return itself. It's the thing that gives us hope. As Psalm 130 says, I will wait, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I have hope. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. James is drawing this connection and challenge for us that our suffering should point us to our hope. Our hope in Christ, our hope in Christ's return and in, etern and in the eternity we are going to spend with him. Pain and suffering in life is something that all humans share in common. Every person in this room, every person out in the lobby, every person driving down the streets past this church, every single one of us go through suffering. But not every person has the hope that we have. Not every person is a, is a believer in Jesus. Not every person has the knowledge and the faith of the hope that is within us. James is saying that uh, 
isn't just saying that we have to suffer and bear it, but he is actually encouraging us that we can bear it and we can go through that suffering because of our hope. But how? How can we do this? You know, it's really easy for someone to sit, get up here and say, okay, well, you've just got to be patient. You've just got to wait. And if that was all that was said, it'd be like, okay, well, that's great. But what else is there? What more is there? Well, the passage goes on and says it when it says, establish your hearts. And what does that mean? Well, first, let's think about what it means to establish something. It's the idea that you are putting in something permanent. It's so you're putting together something for a purpose. You're, it's supposed to be sturdy. It's supposed to be something that is not easily moved. So to establish your hearts means that you've got to establish it on something sturdy, something immovable, something so strongly ingrained in you, something so deeply rooted in yourself that no matter what happens, no matter what winds are raging, no matter what storm is blowing overhead or in your heart or, or in your life, that you are stuck in it, that you cannot be moved. And Ephesians chapter 3 gives us a very clear picture of where, of where our steadfastness comes from, of where we're supposed to be established. Verses 17 and 19 say this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints that is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When you are weathering the storms of life, when you are uh, going through difficult times, this is where you are established. It is in the height and the width and the depth of Christ's love for you. When all else fails, when the waves are crashing in, when the storm is blowing so strongly that it feels like you're going to break, is your heart established on the fact that Jesus, that God loves you more than you can ever comprehend? That God is faithful to you in, in ways that you can't even imagine, that you don't even know. This passage tells us that our heart should be established in your faith in Jesus. And a faith that is established, that is deep, that is rooted in Christ does not get knocked down by the torrents of trials. It is not uh, uprooted by the oppression of the rich. It doesn't get knocked down by your oppressive boss or your coworkers, or your husband, or your wife. To be established in Christ means that there is nothing that can move your heart away from the hope that you have in Christ. An established heart is rooted in Christ so that when the storms are raging all around, it is immovable. It cannot be shaken. An established, I'm sorry, because there will be suffering in your life, your heart has to be established on something sturdy. People will hurt you, even people you love. People, will love. people you love will pass away. Money disappears, stuff rusts and falls apart. But the love of Christ is sure. It is a sure foundation for every person who would find that foundation. It is a sure foundation for everyone who would put their hope on that foundation.
It is steadfast. So let me ask you, believers, is your faith fully established on the love, on the height, the depth, the width, the fullness of God's love for you? And this idea of patience through struggle, it's, it's a difficult one. But James takes this opportunity to exhort believers on what patience looks like outwardly as well, right? So he's talked about the inward idea of patience, but now he's, uh, he goes on to talk about the out- outward when he says, do not grumble against your fellow believers. This idea of patience comes in an outward fashion toward, the, toward other people. And inward patience in our hope of Christ leads to an outward patience toward the people of Christ. And how easy is it to lose patience with the people around you? How easy is it to have a bad day at work and take it out on your family? How easy is it for you to have a bad week and to come to church and to take it out on the people who are sitting in the pews next to you? So here's some questions to ask yourself. Do you lift up fellow believers when things aren't going your way, when things aren't going the way you would like them to? Do you... Um, I'm sorry, when you are in the midst of something painful, do you say painful things to those in the very pews you're sitting in? Do you compare your struggles to those of others? I know that's a difficult one. I, in my own life, I've experienced this. I, I've, I've been pretty open about this with people who know me, but I have had moments where being single has caused deep, deep pain in my own heart right? Getting married is something that I want. I, I'm open about that, but there have been moments in my life where I've, I've looked at other people who have gotten married and I've said, why don't I have that? And in my own heart, I, I'm not, it's harder for me to be happy for them. I actually grumble against them in my own heart. So this isn't coming from a place of someone who doesn't, who doesn't do that or hasn't experienced that. I, I've done that, and I'm sure that many of you have as well. So, but when you're comparing those, your struggles to others, I want you to keep in mind that every one of us are on different paths to the same summit, and that, is our, that summit is the eternity with Christ. Painlessness is not promised to the believer is not promised to us. And that person that you are comparing your struggles with has their own set of struggles that you don't know. They have their own set of pains that they are going through. These things, uh, the, the idea of comparing and grumbling against your believers should not be true of a suffering believer. The last thing an oppressed believer should do is oppress other believers with your words. When you, uh, when you do tear down fellow believers, you are only hurting yourself. Part of the system God has given us is the church. It is our fellow believers to help encourage and to build us up. Galatians 6.2 says that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. When you're suffering, when you're in pain, the people sitting next to you in these pews are here to help you. They're here to build you up. They're here to help you establish when you feel like you're being blown about. God has given them to you to encourage you, to build you up. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens. And so if we're grumbling against one another, how can you expect that person to continue to try and build you up when you are just tearing them down? 
A time of trial should not be a time to lean away from the body of Christ, but actually to lean into the body of Christ. And James gives us a very compelling reason of why you shouldn't grumble. He says uh, that we are actually going to be judged. It says that the judge is standing at the door. Romans 14 verses 10 through 12 give us a really clear picture of this as well. And it says this, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. To be clear, this isn't uh, the idea that we're being called up, that we're gonna give an account for our actions for salvation or the assurance of salvation. But this passage is teaching us that even the believer will stand or kneel rather before the throne of God and have to account for his life in Christ. We should not become guilty of tearing one another down in our suffering. So you might be sitting here and asking, what does that actually look like? What does it actually look like to suffer well, to suffer patiently? And the, and the passage, again, it points us to prophets who have suffered. And, and it, it says generally, and then it points us to Job. So I want to talk uh, about one prophet. Uh, I want to talk about Jeremiah and then uh, also about Job. And if you know anything about Jeremiah, you might also know him as the weeping prophet. That's, that's real encouraging, right? To be known as the weeping person, right? And for all of eternity, you're known as the guy who cried. He's known as the weeping prophet, but he had good reason to be known as the weeping prophet. His own tribe, those who would have been closest to him, his family threatened to kill him. He was whipped and beaten and thrown into stocks. He was attacked by mobs. He was threatened by the king. He was beaten. He was thrown in jail. He was eventually thrown into a well and they allowed him to starve. He was kidnapped against his own will to Egypt. Jeremiah spent 40 years giving the Lord's word to his people and throughout that entire 40 years of his life, he was rejected and scorned and persecuted. He wrote a, the book of Lamentations, which is an expression of grief and sorrow and weeping. Jeremiah's life was one that was marked by struggle, by pain, by suffering. But Jeremiah was not a, a prophet without hope. We see in Lamentations 3, verses 21 and 24, it says this, but this I call to mind. So in the midst of his suffering, right? In chapter three, he's going through the throes of his pain. He's, he's weeping before the Lord. But in the middle of that weeping, he says this, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Despite everything that Jeremiah went through in his life, despite being beaten and torn apart and persecuted, he said, my hope is not in those things. My hope is in the love of God. 
My faith is rooted. My hope is rooted. It's steadfast. It's sure because God is steadfast and sure. The Lord was his portion. He was Jeremiah's everything. Jeremiah is saying that when he had nothing else, that when he had nothing, he had everything because he had God. We look finally at Job. We see at the beginning of Job, at the very first verse of Job, he was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was a very wealthy person. Most of you probably know this story. He had uh, thousands of oxen and camels and sheep and donkeys. He had kids whom he loved, uh, family who got along. They apparently got together regularly, right? So Job seems to have it all until God allows Satan to take away everything from Job. Because we see in chapter one, one after another, Servants approach him and say, Job, your camels are gone. Your oxen are gone. Your donkeys are gone. Your sheep, all gone. And then to to top all of that loss off, a person comes up and says, Job, your, your kids, they're all gone. All passed away. And then, as if that wasn't enough, Satan goes back to God and says, well, his, his stuff and his, the people around him, as long as he's got himself and he's healthy, why, why, you know, why would he curse you? Why would he betray you? And so God says, all right, you may go back to him. You just can't take his life. And so Job becomes sick. He becomes so sick that he is miserable. It's so miserable that his wife goes to him and says, tells him to curse God and die. That's not a very comforting wife. Finally, some of Job's friends come to comfort him. For seven days and nights, they sit there in silence and, and, and just sit there in sorrow with him. But then, after that, they actually accuse Job of being in the wrong. They accuse Job uh, of having sinned, and that's why he's going through all this suffering. But we know that Job was upright. He, even after all of this, Job even seems to complain to God. So how can someone who complained to God be found to be steadfast? Job isn't considered steadfast because he didn't question God. Job isn't considered steadfast because he didn't groan or feel pain or feel loss or sorrow. Job is considered faithful because at the end of his trials, at the end of all of that loss, at the end of all of his pain, all of his suffering, He affirmed what he had before his trials, before his suffering, was that God was the Lord of his life, that God was enough for him, that God loved him. We know from the books that Job and Jeremiah were righteous men of God and they were doing the will of God. And we hear those two stories and wonder, how can God be merciful and compassionate and still allow them to suffer like that? How can God still be merciful and compassionate and allow me to suffer? Let me tell you this. God has a purpose. You may not see it, and often those purposes go unseen. I don't think Job knew that his life story was gonna be written down and included in God's word to encourage us thousands of years down the road. 
Job didn't know that his story was going to make a difference in the lives of generations of believers. God has a purpose that we often don't see, but there is an ultimate purpose that we do see that God revealed to us in chapter one, verses two and four and verse 12 of James. It's the idea that we are to grow more like Christ. It says uh, that through trials, we're supposed to become more like Christ, that we're supposed to be complete, wanting nothing. And that at the end of our life, in verse 12, that our steadfastness will be rewarded with the crown of life, which is promised to all those who are in Christ Jesus. We see in Jeremiah and Job that suffering happens, sometimes for an entire lifetime. We see in Jeremiah and Job that it is okay to feel pain and to take time to heal. But we also see where Job and Jeremiah ran with their grief. They ran to God. Their belief that God was merciful and compassionate led them to hope in Christ or in God. Their hope was in God sustaining them and keeping his promises to them faithfully. They found hope in his steadfast love and they no doubt are rejoicing with God now that their faith is turned to sight. There are people in this room that are, I know are going through suffering. There are many in this room that I can only imagine what you are going through. Some of you may be asking yourself, why is God allowing this to happen? What if this pain doesn't go away? Where am I supposed to get the strength to get through this? How can I do that which seems impossible, which is to remain patient in my suffering? My encouragement to you is to run to his promises. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4 say this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an, in, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The answer God gives us in scripture is sometimes a difficult one, but it is at its root, it is at its very root, true and deep and sure. It is a true and deep and sure hope. Your hope and your patience comes from your faith in Jesus Christ. In his goodness, in his purposes, in his plan, in his steadfast love, in the living hope that is within you. It's not in your circumstances because your circumstances are going to change all the time. They're, they're going to rage against you like a storm. They're going to try and beat you down and, and tear you out of the ground, out of your steadfastness, out of your hope. It's, the world around you wants nothing more than for you to give up your hope in Jesus. But a believer, a, a Christian, has reason to hope because that hope is steadfast. Circumstances change. God's love, God's steadfastness, his faithfulness to you is sure. It does not change. If you're wondering why it has to be 
on this truth, why your patience, why your steadfastness has to be on this, it's because it is the only thing in your life that is not subject to change. It is the only thing in your life that will never fail you. It is the only thing in your life that will never let you down. It's your hope in Jesus Christ. Faith isn't tested when things are easy. Faith is tested through trial and storm. Christ never preached this easy believism. Some might say the, the prosperity gospel. Christ never preached that if you believed in him, you'd be happy, healthy, wealthy, and, and wise, that you'd be prosperous. Jesus said, take up thine cross. Jesus himself followed that all the way through. And we see in his own example that he groaned. He groaned in suffering when he was in the garden. It said, but at the end, he said, not my will, but yours, but thine. Jesus followed that through all the way to the cross, all the way till his death. The removal of suffering isn't promised, but that which we hope for is promised. We have our hope in Christ. We have eternal security in Jesus. And we also have our help in Christ. The beautiful thing is that God does not leave you to bear those sufferings alone. I want you to hear this because there are people in this room who need to hear this. You are not alone. You are not alone. The God of all grace is with you. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He has not promised to take away your suffering, but he has also promised to never leave you alone in your struggle. He has promised to listen to you and to provide grace for you. His love for you is unyielding. It is of far greater uh, portions than you can ever imagine. It's of far greater portions than you can even understand or comprehend. In just a moment, after I wrap up my sermon, we're going to be singing In Christ Alone. I want to read the first and the fourth verse of that song to you. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll read it. In Christ Alone. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. The fourth verse says this, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I'll stand. To sing those words is one thing or to read those words is one thing. 
but to faithfully live by those words is a whole nother thing. Christians, followers of Christ, be patient and look to the hope you have in him. Our hope for that day, as Revelations 21 says, that day where there will be no more tears, that death shall be no more, there will be no more mourning, no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain. So, my brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask you this. Is your heart established in your hope in Jesus? Is he truly enough for you when you have nothing else? Is your heart rooted in the hope of Christ when you're in the the grief of loss or the pain of hurt or the throes of betrayal or abandonment? Where do you run for hope? When your world is crumbling around you, where is your hope established? Are you waiting patiently for Christ alone for his return? in Christ alone, for Christ alone. I'm gonna end with this, uh, this passage from 1 Peter 4.19, this verse. It says this. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you are our steadfast and sure hope, that nothing that, that happens to us can ever remove us from that hope, that we can find a sure footing, a, a safe place, a fortress to rest in, to find our hope in, that we may patiently wait for the day that we look forward to, for, that we can patiently wait till the day we stand with you and all of our pain, all of our suffering is gone. God, we thank you that in Christ we have a hope that never fails us. I pray that we would go forward today and this week and the rest of our life that no matter what happens in our life, no matter our circumstance, that you are sure, that your hope is sure, that you love us beyond any measure, beyond any doubt, that you are there for us. God, we thank you for your son who died on the cross to give us that assurance. And pray these things in